Uh, I hope you've got your Bibles there. Uh, We're going to the passage that was read by Sue earlier, um, Mark chapter 11. Let me pray. Our Father, we, um, we just pray that you would help us to see clearly the things that you want us to see clearly in your word this afternoon. We pray that you do that by the power of your spirit as we read and listen and think. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you see the Easter eggs, you see the hot cross buns, all of those things in the shops. Uh, In fact, the people at Coles tell me they have too much chocolate at the moment. Their Easter eggs are on special uh, I thought that only happened after Easter. Anyway, uh, that, that means also that Palm Sunday is coming soon. In fact, it's three weeks away uh, where churches are going to celebrate when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And they do it in all kinds of ways. Uh, in some churches, there will be special ceremonies like the one you see on the screen where palm branches will be splashed with holy water to bless them. Uh, in some congregations, there will be processions through the church Um, In other congregations, they will keep those palm branches and save them up through the year and then burn them and use the ashes for Ash Wednesday's ceremonies. Now, I'm not someone who is against celebrating and uh, reliving, acting out the events of the Gospels, not at all. There's a great place for doing that. But when I read Mark chapter 11, it does make me wonder if all of that ceremony and all the blessing of the palm branches and the processions and the ashes, I wonder if somehow when people are doing that, they're actually missing the point that Mark is trying to make, that Jesus is making. So what is the point? What is it that Mark wants us to see and understand about Jesus in Mark 11? Well, he's got limited space. He, He only tells us the key things And so as we look at them, we'll be able to figure out what is important. And let me tell you, palm branches, they're not even mentioned in Mark 11. Uh, They're not that important. What is important when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem is that he deliberately arrives as the promised king. Uh, He arrives in Jerusalem as the king who brings salvation to God's people. And when he comes as the promised king, brings salvation, he also comes to bring an end to the temple, to bring judgment on what's going on there. Those are the things that are important. Those are the things that Mark wants us to see. And all of those things have consequences as well. There are consequences for the people living in Jesus' time, but there are also some consequences for us that we're going to look at. So how we think about church is one of those. One of the other things we're going to think about is how we relate to other people. But to get there, we've got to go through chapter 11. So let me just point out, one of the things that we've seen all the way through Mark's gospel so far is that Mark is very deliberate about how he puts his information together. And he does that here as well in chapter 11. Everything in that section that we read, 11, 1 to 25, is very deliberate. Everything Jesus does is very deliberate. There's no accidents here, nothing that doesn't fit. You see that straight away as you're reading chapter 11, even from verse 1. So if you've got your Bible open, have a look at what's going on. There is this very deliberate plan that's being worked out. 
uh, it says Jesus uh, has this plan where he sends out two disciples and he tells them, I want you to go and when you come into the village, you're going to find a colt that's never been ridden, it's tied up there. And the disciples are to go and untie the colt and people will talk about it. And there's a lot of repetition about this colt which is tied up and being untied. It sounds, to my ear anyway, kind of deliberate, which it is. See, there's a place in the Old Testament which also talks about a colt which is tied up. In fact, only one place in the Old Testament, in Genesis 49, and that place just happens to be talking about the great king who's from the tribe of Judah, who will rule over all of the nations. And that repetition of a cult being tied up, I think, is designed to, if we're reading our Bible and we're knowing what's going on, it's designed to take us in that direction. That's the first thing that Jesus is doing on purpose here. But the next thing that he does that Mark tells us about is even more obvious than that. That one's a little bit harder to spot. Uh, the next one is more obvious. Jesus takes this cult, this young horse or donkey, and he rides it into Jerusalem to make his entry into the city. Now, there are a couple of things going on here. On the one hand, there is a pretty obvious contrast to anybody who's paying attention in that time between Jesus' arrival and the arrival of the Roman governor, Pilate, who would have come probably just a couple of days before Jesus. Uh, Pilate, the governor, made an entrance to Jerusalem every year just before Passover. And when he came, he came with horses and with chariots. Uh, He came with soldiers and all the force of the Roman Empire to declare to the citizens of Jerusalem, I'm the boss. I'm the one in charge. So on the one hand, you've got Pilate coming like that. And now here's Jesus coming on this little donkey, this little colt that no one's ever ridden before. Not a war horse, no chariots. And anyone who's been around Jerusalem watching the pomp and ceremony will see the contrast there. On the other hand, though, the other thing that's going on is not so much a contrast, but this bold declaration that Jesus is making. Uh, The choice of this animal, again, it's a very deliberate choice to ride into Jerusalem on this colt because it's Jesus' way of declaring to the people that he is the promised king that they have been waiting for. He is making his arrival in exactly the way that the prophet Zechariah, several hundred years before, had said that the king would arrive. So in Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because, have a look, see your king comes to you. And how does he come? Righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By entering Jerusalem this way, Jesus is making a bold declaration And the people who are around him, they get it. They understand what Jesus is doing. Uh, Mark says to us that they're cheering and shouting. They're singing in the street as Jesus makes his way along the road. They understand what Jesus is doing, that he is the king. And you can see that in the way that they respond, the things they're singing and shouting about. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, the great king of Israel the one in whose line the Messiah would be. 
They understand what Jesus is saying. There's nothing accidental here. It's all very clear. His choice of transport is very deliberate. He is saying to the world, I am the promised king that the Old Testament spoke about. What does the promised king come to bring? He comes to bring salvation. That's what Zechariah said in that same verse we were looking at. So your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. Just like the people get that Jesus is the king, bringing in the kingdom of David, they get that he comes to bring salvation as well. That's what they're shouting about. Hosanna, that word that's there a couple of times, uh, means that. It's, it's a kind of weird word. It basically means save, but it becomes something that you sing out to say, God's salvation is coming. That's what they're celebrating. The king is coming to save them. He's coming to rescue them. But just think about the situation that they're in. Roman occupation. The king is coming to save them. The Roman governor has just come in town with his chariots and horses. And not just him, but the corrupt would-be king, Herod Antipas, who we met before. We know that he's also recently arrived in Jerusalem, ready for Passover. So where should this saviour king who's coming to rescue his people go? Should he go to the governor's palace or maybe Herod's palace? Well, have a look at verse 11. See where Jesus actually goes. He enters Jerusalem and he goes to the temple. He goes to God's palace. While he's there, he just does one thing. He looks around, looks around at everything in the temple. Takes it in, looking to see. And then he looks at his watch and says, gee, it's getting late. Well, I don't think he had a watch, but it says it was late. So rather than stay around, they go home, back down through the valley, up over the Mount of Olives, back to Bethany. That's the end of day one in Jerusalem. I don't know if you realize this when we read it. This is three consecutive days being laid out for us here. This is the end of day one. When we get to day two, we get right to the heart of what's going on in the temple. And then day three is thinking about the consequences. Now, before we think about day two and look at that, I want to remind you just briefly about how Mark has been very deliberate in the way that he's arranged information in his gospel. Very often, he's taken two things and deliberately placed them side by side for us so that we can see and compare. So in chapter six, we had two kings and two banquets. Do you remember that? And then in chapter 8, we had the healing of the blind man. But right next to the healing of this blind man who sees in part and then sees clearly, we have Peter who starts to see more clearly who Jesus is. But he doesn't quite get it all yet. Then last week, chapter 10, there was the the little children who come empty-handed to Jesus. They've got nothing to bring. And right next to that was the story of the rich young ruler who had everything so much in his hands that he wouldn't let go of. Mark's been very deliberate in this. And Jesus is also very deliberate. Mark is putting things side by side because that's what Jesus does. And as we come into day two, it's important to see how things have been put side by side here to help explain the point of what's going on so let's pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 11 it says that 
They're leaving Bethany once again. They're on their way back to Jerusalem, so across the Mount of Olives, down the valley and up towards the temple. But on their way, while they're on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sees a fig tree all covered in leaves and he's hungry. He goes across to it looking for something to eat. When he gets to the fig tree, he sees plenty of leaves, but there's no fruit. And so he does what any normal person would do, right? What does he do? Actually, the text says he curses the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples hear it. What's that all about? Why is Jesus doing that? Is that that's a puzzling little thing. You might kind of read that and scratch your head and think what this person has. By the way, that's not a real kid's Bible. Um, you can't get that in the shops. But, you know, God hates figs and Jesus is cranky and... It's, it's what it feels like, isn't it? You read that passage like Jesus must have got out of bed on the wrong side that morning and pulled on his cranky pants instead of his ordinary pants. Kind of like, well, Jesus will leave that one to the side. And, but actually, everything is deliberate in Mark's gospel. What Jesus is doing is very deliberate. There are no accidents here. Mark wants us to see this and put it side by side with something else. Jesus wants his disciples to see and hear what he says. Mark makes a point of recording that they heard what he said because pretty soon they're about to see and hear something else which is going to be puzzling and seem unusual. So here they are, they're up on the Mount of Olives uh, looking out across the valley toward the Temple Mount. They're there with the fig tree and the Temple is in sight. And that's important because what happens with the fig tree matches up with what happens at the temple. So let's compare the two. Uh, Just as Jesus looked at the fig tree when he first saw it, hoping to find something good on day one, just after he'd ridden into Jerusalem, what did Jesus do? He looked around at the temple, looking to see what was going on there. Just like... When he went up to the fig tree, he found that it was fruitless. What does Jesus find when he looks at the temple? When he goes there on day two? It's fruitless. It's all show and no substance. There is plenty of religion there. But the people who are leading it are far away from God. And in particular, they are disconnected from God's heart for the nations. It's worth noticing. Jesus says, my house will be called a, prayer, uh, a house of prayer for all nations. That's a very deliberate thing because we know from history that the, part of the, the one part of the temple where foreigners could come, the court of the Gentiles in the outer courts of the temple, we know from history that that is where the, the, seller, the money changers and the sellers of these animals for the, for the sacrifices That's where they have set up. They used to be set up outside of the city. But just before uh, this time, they've been allowed to move into the temple. They're in the court of the Gentiles. And by setting up their trading stalls, they have driven out of the temple the people for whom this part of the temple was designed to reach the nations, a place for them to come and seek God. Jesus... What what does he do? Well, just like he cursed the fig tree because it was all leaf and no fruit, that is exactly what happens with the temple when he arrives on day two. Judgment. 
he begins to drive out those who are buying and selling there. See, Mark's being very deliberate. Jesus is being very deliberate, setting these things side by side. And his driving out all of the, the sellers and stuff is a symbol of judgment on the whole of the temple. Uh, that little bit about the den of robbers, have a look at verse 17. You'll see he quotes there, it's in quotation marks. He's quoting straight from the prophet Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah uses exactly that phrase, speaking of the house which bears my name, the temple. And if you read a little bit further in Jeremiah 7, the consequence of that is that God says his wrath is going to be poured out on this place. It's judgment on the temple. And that's the whole point of the fig tree. This is a sign of judgment. So now, if you look, it's day three. They're heading back to the temple and they see the fig tree. Yesterday, green, covered in leaves. Today, it's dead, withered from the roots. What Mark wants us to see and what Jesus deliberately wants his disciples to see is that this fig tree, this withered fig tree, is a symbol of what's going to happen to the temple. The temple is under God's judgment. Its place in the world is coming to an end. The judgment that the prophets spoke about, the great day of judgment, is on its way and it's connected with the arrival of the king. Now, Peter understands that. Peter, who's been getting things wrong all the way through the gospel, I think is suddenly starting to understand. He is like, if you go to the end of chapter 10, he's like the blind man who we meet there, who is in contrast, at the start of the trip to Jerusalem, the blind man who's only seeing things partially right, then just before they arrive in Jerusalem, this other blind man who can see immediately. And Peter now is also seeing clearly. He's seen what Jesus has done to the fig tree in the temple. He's put two and two together and he realizes this means that the temple is coming to an end. That's why Mark says Peter remembered. He's putting two and two together. If it can happen to the fig tree, then this is what's going to happen to the temple as well. But that's got some serious consequences. I mean, for Peter, for Jewish people of that time, of course, the temple was super important to them, especially in terms of how they related to God. Because the God who created the heavens and the earth lived in heaven, but although he lived in heaven, the temple that was built on earth was the one place he promised that he would be present on earth. The temple was where you could come near to God. The temple was where you could come uh, to make sacrifices in particular that were made for the forgiveness of sins. And so Peter remembers and he's putting two and two together. And I think his thinking process goes a bit like this. And I'm, I'm getting this by feeding back in what you see in, in verses 23 through to 25. Um, Mark is being deliberate, remember. So what you get in verses 23, 2 to 25, that's not accidental. It's not kind of just random stuff that's stuck on at the end of the fig tree story. It's all connected together. So Peter's thinking something like this. Wow, if the temple's going to go, that could be good. Like, it deserves God's judgment. There's all this corruption going on in there. 
Oh, but if the temple goes, that could be bad. I mean, if the temple's gone, then how, how will sacrifices be made? How can people be forgiven? How can we draw near to God? The temple is the place where God is present on earth. Peter looks at the fig tree. He sees that it's withered. He says to Jesus, oh. And Jesus replies, verse 22, have faith in God. It's not just a random comment. He's answering Peter's concern. Have faith in God, which means trust God when it comes to the temple. Trust God in the whole matter of judgment. Trust him with the matter of forgiveness. Now, the stuff that Jesus then says about mountains and praying and believing, uh, it's, it's all along the same line. It's all about putting your faith in God, trusting God. It's not, you know, you, you're driving out west and you find it really inconvenient that the Blue Mountains are there and it's slowing you down and if only you could believe enough and the mountains are gone. That's not what it says at all. Um, there, there's a little clue here that this is one of those places where it's good to have a preacher who can tell you actually in the Greek... Uh, I don't want you to lose confidence in your English translations. Our translations are great. They're really good. But we miss a little point in our English translations because the word have faith, when Jesus says have faith in God, and believe, if you believe, in the verses that follow, it's essentially the same word. looks pretty much the same on the page. They're connected up together. And so as you read these verses, realize that Jesus is still talking about having faith in God, not having faith in the power of belief. It's not, if you believe, then your belief is going to do all these things. No, it's have faith in God. Trust God. The temple may come to an end, but you can trust God that he is still in control. Even if you pray boldly for God to bring judgment on the temple... And I suspect that's what verse 23 is actually talking about. See how Jesus says, if anyone says to this mountain, he's standing on the Mount of Olives. Uh, We heard in the video, Zechariah chapter 14 is about the Mount of Olives being split in two and the whole geography changing at the judgment of God. Or, Or maybe this mountain is as he points across to the Temple Mount. But he's being specific, isn't he? So even if you pray boldly for God to bring about the judgment that the temple deserves, um, Jesus says you can have faith in God with that. You can trust God, believe it will happen, but God is still in control. God will still answer your prayers. And even if that happens, you can still find forgiveness without having to go to the temple and make sacrifices. Have a look at verse 25. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Do you need to go to the temple to make a sacrifice for your Father in heaven to forgive you? No, Jesus says it's more important that you are forgiving others. There's a lot going on here and uh, we don't have time to get into everything. Um, But what I do want to do, having talked about the consequences as Peter sees them and Jesus' answer to have faith in God, I want us to think a little bit about consequences for us as we finish up. First of all, the way we think about church, about our church in particular. 
Come back in the passage to day two. Jesus at the temple with all that's going on there. The key in that section is that the insiders of the religion had made their own convenience about where they can buy and sell animals, their own views of right worship, so important that they had locked the outsiders out of having any access into what God had said was the way he wanted them to come to know him and find him. The insiders had locked the outsiders out because of their preferences when it came to religion. And that is what gets Jesus so riled up and angry. And it's pretty easy to apply, isn't it? I mean, our own man-made systems of religion, of, of our preferences of how we worship God, particular ways of doing ministry, those things can easily get in the way of God's mission of what he actually wants to do to reach the lost, to see them come to Christ and be built up in him. So when that happens, one of two things has got to, got to be the result. Either we change what we're doing to get in line with God's mission or we hold on to those preferences and we fall under God's judgment. Now that's a big challenge for us. Uh, in a church like ours, with a, a church with a long history, a church with lots of stories of great ministry over the years, a church with plenty of good things going on now, in a church like ours, we're all going to have certain things that we love, that we have a preference for, things that we want to hang on to with a closed fist. This is what we really need. But we need to be people who are quite deliberate about choosing what are the things we're going to hold on to tightly. And I think those things ought to be God's mission. God's desire to save the lost, to transform lives through the power of the gospel. Hold on to, sit tight with those things and sit very loosely with our own preferences. There are preferences and ministries and things we've devoted time to over the years that we might need to learn to hold with an open hand especially as we think about what we might do with this property in the future for our, our church in this changing community. That's the first thing. Second thing I just want to touch on briefly is how we relate to other people. And uh, Jesus is pretty plain here in verse 25, so let's just say what he says. If you don't forgive others, then Jesus is essentially saying you don't believe the gospel. If you don't forgive others, if you're carrying bitterness in your heart towards someone, if you keep refusing to forgive them, even if they've sought your forgiveness, if you keep stoking the fires of resentment and judgment against them, then you are in serious danger of your sins not being forgiven by God. Because unforgiveness is a sure sign that the gospel has not really found its way into your heart. So what do you do? What should you do? Well, I think first, for any of this to work, we need to be certain of the sin that we carry. Understand how great a sinner you are and how the seriousness of your sin meant that God's son had to die in order to save you. And then change. Turn around. Uh, repent. So what does that mean? Well, in this particular situation of forgiving others, it means that you need to make an effort to seek that person out and go and talk to them about what they've done and how it's hurt you. Not, not as a way of beating them over the head with their faults, 
But in the light of the gospel and all that God has done for you and the mercy God's shown you, you need to go to them and give them a chance to see how what they've done has affected you so that they can have an opportunity to recognize that and apologize and repent. And if they apologize, then forgive them. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't ever withhold forgiveness or use it as a weapon against people. Instead, show mercy just like God has shown mercy to you. And if they don't apologize, if they refuse to to repent, well, then you're in a situation where you can't really forgive them. But the whole business of having gone to them to try to seek this forgiveness, what you've done there has done a great work in your own heart. You are training your heart to go in God's direction, and that's no small thing. See, God changes people's lives when they practice forgiveness in their relationships. It's a real thing. I see it all the time. So if you need to forgive someone, then don't mess around. Go and seek them out and show in doing that that Jesus really is king in your own life, that he has brought you salvation, that he dwells not in a temple made with hands in some city on the other side of the world, but he dwells in you by his Holy Spirit, in us, in this community that practices forgiveness together as his people, as Peter says, are built up to be a temple of their own. Don't mess around. If you need to forgive someone, go and seek them out and do it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that, uh, that when Jesus came as king, as the saviour, as the judge, um, he not only brought an end to things that were broken and corrupt, but he's actually brought in a new way of relating to you. And we We look forward to unravelling that more in in Mark's gospel in the days ahead. But Lord, please help us not to go home from here today without actually doing the things that Jesus tells us to. Teach us what we need to hold on to tightly and what we need to hold in an open hand. Give us courage to really believe the gospel and do that risky thing of going and approaching others to talk with them so that we can forgive them just as you've forgiven us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.